Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumboots on. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi, thanks for joining me for Countrywide. I'm Jessica Schremer, bringing you the program from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. Coming up, the plant-based meat industry was booming just a few years ago, with new products popping up on shelves constantly. But now sales are down, some companies are disappearing, and some companies are merging. First of all, it has to be tasty, then it has to be easy to use and easy to find, then it has to be cheap, and then it has to be healthy for the people and for the planet. More on that story in just a tick. And ever wondered where native bush food you buy comes from? A new app using blockchain technology to improve traceability is aiming to solve that and benefit indigenous communities. More on that soon, but first up today. Trade talks between Australia and the European Union have once again failed this week. After five years of negotiations, Trade Minister Don Farrell has been holding the final round of negotiations with his EU counterpart on the sidelines of the G7 Trade Ministers meeting in Osaka, Japan. Australia wants greater access to the lucrative but notoriously protectionist market. But the EU returned with the same offer rejected earlier this year. The EU wants to impose new farming practices on Australian producers and ban Australia from using product names including Parmesan, Mozzarella, Feta and Prosecco. President of the National Farmers Federation, David Chuhinke, says he's still hopeful an agreement can be reached in the future. Well, for starters, we are supporting um, the minister's efforts in trying to come to a conclusion of these negotiations, noting that they have been extremely difficult to date. And at the moment, we're not going with the narrative that all hope has been lost in this round at the moment. We are understanding that there's still meetings being held, of which we've made it very clear of what our asks are around agriculture and noting that there hasn't been a lot of movement. But once again, we, we've been in constant contact with both Mr. Minister Farrell's staff um, and directly with himself. And we're supporting his current stance and how he's working with industry to try to get an outcome. You mentioned there, you've made it very clear what our asks are. Just in, in brief, what would you like to see happen as part of this deal? What we're not seeing so far is a commercially... Uh, attractive deal for agriculture to get our agricultural products into what is a very large marketplace for us and so a marketplace that we already have very strong trading ties with so when we talk specifically it is around getting better access for beef getting better access for sugar and getting better access for our cotton and overall there is obviously other concerns around as mentioned at the start how we trade with the EU and what some of the regulations and asks that they have upon Australian agriculture. Okay, so let's say, and you said there you, you, there are still some meetings going on, your hopeful negotiations will continue, but let's say this is dead in the water and, and the negotiations have failed. How will that affect farmers around the country? Well, once again, we're, we're not running with that at the moment. We're definitely I, I know you're not running with supportive. that line, but I know you're not running with that line, but surely you've, you've sort of mapped what could happen here if the negotiations fail. Potentially, these are hypotheticals, sure, but how would that affect farmers around the country if they do fail? 
Well, um, what we're going to be asked is that the conversations are adjourned and we can, can still continue to have those conversations. And obviously, if we're not getting good access to these markets, um, we'd prefer a no deal than a deal. So if the talks are heading in the direction that they are, we would rather reset, recalibrate and uh, ensure that we can still continue to do the trade that we have got with the, the EU and the current conditions and also make sure that um, any other trade agreements that are on the on the horizon also are beneficial for agriculture. So for us, yes, it will be a missed opportunity um, if, we, if we can't secure a better deal. But once again, um, Australian agriculture has many markets. Um, we would like to be participating in the EU market, but we're not going to do it at any cost. When we look at why it's been so difficult to agree to a trade deal, I mean, one of the issues is naming rights, right? I mean, the EU is not budging on these naming rights, Prosecco, Feta, Mozzarella, Parmesan. Why is that such a crucial issue? How much would losing those naming rights cost Australian farmers, David? Well, there's a few um, parts to unpack there. First of all, it is the descriptor. When you go to the supermarket and ask for feta, everybody knows what feta is, everyone understands what it is, and everyone mm. understands its characteristics. So to replace that with an Australian-based name would take a huge undertaking for just both education in the Australian market, let alone then how we would introduce that to our other markets overseas. And secondly, in Australia, we are a very inclusive culture. We, we have these names because we've had generations of... Um, immigrants come to Australia and bring their their flavours, their tastes with them and we feel that it would be a loss if we were to just give those those naming rights up, those those um, descriptor names, without having some meaningful concessions back. President of the National Farmers Federation, David Chohinki there, speaking with Thomas Oriti. Meanwhile, a mining industry advisor says Australia's resource sector is a major loser in the collapse of the trade deal. While some in Australia's agriculture sector celebrate the news, mining industry advisor Philip Kirk-Lechner says the stalled negotiations are a massive loss. He says facilitating European investment into Australia's resource sector is a matter of urgency. I thought it was quite shocking that such an important uh, negotiation would just fall apart The European Union is a huge economy and there are huge mutual advantages in doing a series of trade deals. And it just seems that one sector of the economy is having a disproportionate effect uh, on something that is so important for us. What, what do you see is so important within those deals? What would have been important for Australia? Well, first of all, we need to remind ourselves what is our competitive advantage in Australia. We have, we're very rich in resources, and resources are becoming scarcer around the world. So this is our competitive advantage. We also have, particularly in Western Australia, set up a regulatory framework that is very stable. We have a policy environment that is very conducive to exploration and development of mines. We had very good and strong relationships with uh, markets around the world and investors in around the world that allowed us to build a very strong export capability. As, as a result, Western Australia is really carrying the economy of Australia with iron ore being our nation's number one export product. Now, 
we, we cannot just rest on that. We have to think about the future. And there will come a time when China's steel production will come down. And we need to develop other areas. We need to think about future-oriented industries, such as industries that help us or help the world deal with climate change. And so critical minerals could be our next backbone of the Australian economy. And to that end, the uh, European Union is a huge market for it, but also a very important potential provider of capital. So do you see it that by having some kind of agreement in place, there would have been more encouragement for the EU to invest capital into Australia to then see some of these rare earths and and critical minerals mines projects come into fruition to then be able to supply the EU? Is it that sort of missing uh, agreement that may see the capital not flow into Australia? Exactly. So we need to recognize what, what are our competitive advantages. And the, the issue with minerals generally is that we, we have a lot of these minerals around the globe. But if they're not in a secure location, they might as well be on the moon, right? And you've had situations around the world where uh, governments change. You had uh, sovereign risk, especially in many African countries. But Western Australia is, is probably the world's most safest location. So we have a strong advantage, and we should use that advantage in our negotiations with the European Union. Mining industry advisor Philip Kirkleckner speaking with Michelle Stanley. Meanwhile, Prosecco producers are popping corks in celebration of Australia walking away from the free trade deal with the European Union. Natalie Piscini is a third-generation member of the Piscini family that produces Prosecco. She says she's relieved the negotiations broke down. I think we'll be popping the cork on Prosecco bottles. Yes, definitely. At least for a short period of time. You know, you never can count um, your chickens, but uh, we're certainly very pleased that um, Minister Farrell chose not to sign a bad deal at this time. How big is this news? We're hearing from, from journalists that have been covering the trade deals that this is basically the the end of of the push to get a free trade agreement. Some stuff might happen on the on the sidelines in the future, but in terms of the, the key negotiations and signing the deal, this is the end of that. Uh, and that is the end of an almighty battle you've been fighting to keep the name of this wine. Yes, it certainly is. I mean, in 2009, when the Italians changed the name from Prosecco to Galera as a grape variety, we have been working as an industry, as, and especially in the King Valley, very hard to to fight that battle. We won the the court case in 2015 to say that, yes, Prosecco is a great variety. And then to start again when the EU um, free trade negotiations started a couple of years ago, it certainly feels like it has been a long time coming. And we certainly won't rest on our laurels. We know that, um, you know, into the future we could face this question again. But for now... Uh, we're relieved. Was it a nervous weekend knowing that this was the final hours of these negotiations? To be honest, it's actually been a nervous six months because each six weeks 
uh, it seems that the negotiation rounds come up. And to have a final decision made this weekend, we certainly were crossing fingers, toes and everything leading into the weekend. But you, like I said earlier, you just can't count your chickens. How important is Prosecco to the King Valley, to your wine region? Oh, look, you know, for the many of the producers of Prosecco in the King Valley, uh, like Brown Brothers, Del Zotto, Chris Mont, Sam Miranda, uh, it is a very important revenue stream for them. I know specifically for Pizzini, it's over 30% of our revenue annually and growing. In 2001, it was uh, Prosecco was worth over $200 million to the Australian economy. So our office $60 million base in 2007 at a time when we're facing cost of living pressures where we're trading down from um, as consumers we're trading down from champagne to prosecco and uh, so over the next 12 months or so we'll see greater revenue from that particular grape variety the, the other important aspect of this decision is it gives our growers confidence. I know of a grower that had 100 acres that he wanted to plant out to Prosecco, but until we have this decision, it could have been another grape variety. But what grape variety do you plant? So now this gives certainty to our growers. And at a time when we can't sell that much Cabernet or Shiraz into China, it gives the uh, the growers in other wine regions confidence to plant other Italian grape varieties. Does it give you a chance to to plan so much further? Not even wine grape varieties that you're planting planting, but I'd imagine marketing and labels and so and so much more to do with this grape variety in your wine region. Can you take a breath now and actually start to plan some of these things? Absolutely. We don't have to to put aside funds to um, fight any more battles, at least hopefully for the next (laughs) decade. Um, But it gives us the ability to look at other grape varieties and um, invest in them more like Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Montepulciano. Up until now, um, it, it would be very difficult to consider placing a lot of energy in that space. Because if we had have lost the, uh, the use of the word Prosecco for the grape variety, as an industry, we were worried about what variety would be next. So it really just does give us a lot more confidence for investment in our industry going forward. Natalie Piscini from Piscini Vines speaking to Warwick Long. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Now firefighters, communities and farmers in southeast Queensland and New South Wales have been battling severe fires this week. More than 130 fires have been burning across the two states, posing serious risks to lives and homes. Pamela O'Neill is a farmer and RFS volunteer from the town of Bolivia in the New South Wales, New England region. She was fighting fires and told Lara Webster about the frightening situation at times. Uh, when it started to rain spot fires onto the New England Highway at Bluff Rock, um, it was uh, it was pretty frightening actually because the fire was so intense because it was such high wind. Um, all we could do was quick property protection, get out, 
quick property protection, get out. To, to the owner's credits, the houses that we visited were very clear all around. Uh, one house was locked, but that's just unfortunate. <clears throat> yeah, it was uh, it was quick re- a quick look around, retreat, quick look around, retreat. I can't speak for what happened to the north of us, Wollongarra, Jennings, but it sounds like it was very similar. Yeah, so we've heard reports of homes lost there too. This morning, as you and I speak, how are things looking where you are? It's all still going because we've, uh, even at this time of morning, we've got uh, the wind fairly onto all of this long line of fire. Um, I've spoken to a friend, he's on a dozer up Cottlesbrook Road, um, trying to do the containment on the back of his property. Now, that's a good 15 kilometres from where the fire started yesterday. So it, it, the scale of this fire is, is astronomical. Well, Pamela, you also had to leave your own farm, your own property, to, to go and help your neighbours and the other firefighters. Is everything okay at your own home? Uh, well, this all kicked off with um, 30-odd lightning strikes five or six days ago, and I had two of those on my place. Um, I got around ours with the Rayco and then the Sandy Flat Brigade came in and helped, and then there was a helicopter helped it uh, on the second day when it took off a second time. So um, the two that I had on my place, I had sort of under control. That's why I could go and get on a truck and help because I knew they needed it. And what about your livestock, Pamela? Is everything okay there? On my own place, uh, yes. Um, it's in drought conditions. I was surprised at how the fire was burning through <clears throat> the soil through um, dead grass roots because the soil is so dry. And we do know, of course, these fires are burning around farms. Uh, What have you been able to hear or or what have you gathered about impacts on livestock and pasture? Uh, Pasture is uh, going to be a bit desperate for hay up here. It's it's ripped across whole properties. Yeah, there's going to be help needed. Pamela O'Neill, who farms at Bolivia, Speaking to Lara Webster. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Now, there's a smartphone app for almost everything now. But a new partnership means that you can use your phone to make sure Indigenous people benefit when you buy native bush foods and products. Ellie Bradfield has this report. Just like Indigenous art, for a long time, those benefiting from the sale of bush foods were not always Indigenous people. But as more Australians want to buy native foods, plants and products, where they come from, and being able to verify their authenticity is becoming more important. And Indigenous communities are playing a leading role in developing technology that will allow consumers to be more confident in their purchases. You know, am I supporting an Indigenous community when I buy this jam? Where are these products coming from? That's Jagara, Yugambe and Gittable Woman and Indigenous Enterprise Group Chair Madonna Thompson. She explains the concept. One of the main concerns that were raised by some of the elders from communities that currently provide raw products such as kakadu plum around the traceability, authenticity particularly, and cultural authority. And the concern that as more and more people become growers and cultivate native plants um, commercially over time within Australia, that what would get lost 
is this body of information around where did these plants come from because of their important significance to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first cultivators and horticulturalists and harvesters of these, these plants. So we thought, well, we need to be ahead of the game. So we need to, as uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this space, rather than wait to be invited, we need to be part of leading a change in this particular industry. Director of the University of Queensland's Australian Research Council Training Centre for Uniquely Australian Foods, Professor Yasmina Sultan-Bawa says the Tucker app, which uses blockchain technology, means the history of a product from harvesting all the way to the end user can easily be traced. There can be technologies at different points from the point of harvest to consumption. You may use uh, rapid technologies like sensor technologies to understand the quality of the product. And you will also use this Bush Tucker app to record the information, the information of when it was harvested, how it was harvested, how it's going to be stored, how it is going to be distributed. And that would be available as a transparent uh, information for people to access that information and understand from where it is coming. So it really gives, uh, it empowers the communities to actually be in the front seat when they, I mean, when they negotiate prices. And it also gives the comfort to buyers because you have that transparent evidence to show the authenticity and the provenance of the product. The market is growing. So there is a huge demand for these products now in comparison to maybe about a decade ago. And the demand is coming from the wider community because the indigenous communities have already all always known how valuable these products are. So they know the nutritional value. They know the therapeutic value of these products. But because of the market demand and the increase needed in the supply to meet that demand, there is a need for us to prove premium quality of these products. She's hoping this becomes a model that other Indigenous countries can use, benefiting both Indigenous communities and consumers. And the blockchain really allows that kind of transparency and trust to be formed. Uh, I can imagine the retailers like Woolworths and Coles Uh, being very comfortable in buying products from such a native food ledger because uh, the evidence is there to say that it is coming from communities and then the premium quality is retained because there's um, a constant, it's almost like a self-auditing system, you know, because you have to record all that information and you have to ensure that the whole value chain, the temperature is maintained and, you know, the storage and things like that. So I I believe that the market will grow. And Madonna Thompson says it's not just limited to bush foods, but all Australian botanical and food species. We range from being wild harvesters who are wild harvesting, say, kakadu plum that grows naturally in their community through to someone who cultivates, so they're growing salt bush or they're growing waffle, to those who are manufacturing it so they're changing it from that natural that raw product to say a powdered form and that all the way through to you know your your market or shelf ready products such as um your jams or your relishes and we're even looking at uh, a business that will be doing skincare range as well so we can just show show how we can track from where the community wild harvests it all the way through 
to a product on a shelf. The bush foods industry has the potential to become big, but it's the application of Australian botanical and food species across numerous industries. So it's, it, food is only one aspect. Australian botanical species are being applied across uh, the seafood industry around preservation. It's being applied to the, nutri- uh, the pharmaceutical and nutrimedics industries, uh, the health foods industry. You know, with the cooperative that um, I sit on, the Bush and Botanicals Indigenous Enterprise Group, Enterprise Cooperative Limited, we have um, Indigenous growers and harvesters who uh, were working collaboratively with universities and research around the application of Australian botanical species, even in pesticides. She says traceability is extra important because of the place-based nature of bush foods and plants. A lot of species are uniquely come from particular areas of Australia and some of those species are found nowhere else on the continent but certain places, such as Kakadu Plum, which is Northern Territory in Northwestern Australia. And so these species play a very important part culturally to those communities. They have totems attached to these. They have relationship of skin law attached to these species. They have been a part of the practice of maintaining those spaces for more than 10 generations, which has, and science is is starting to recognise, that these practices have also enabled um, the resilience and the response of those plant species then equates to something like the highest concentration of vitamin C known because of the way they have been cared for by those communities. Indigenous Enterprise Group Chair Madonna Thompson ending that story from Ellie Bradfield. And if you'd like to read more on that story, you can head online to abc.net.au slash rural. A few years ago, it seemed the plant-based meat industry was booming. New products were constantly appearing on supermarket shelves. And in the US, Beyond Meat started appearing on the stock exchange and at one stage had a shared price of over 230 US dollars. Its share price now is just five dollars. And overall, the industry is struggling. Sales are down, some companies are merging and some companies have disappeared. Matt Brand spoke to food futurist Tony Hunter for his views on what's going wrong. Well, I think the main thing we're looking at there, Matt, is that, you know, fundamentally, a lot of the products, many of them actually don't taste good. And as any large food company knows, if your products don't taste good, the long-term future of your product is in doubt. It's as simple as that? I think it's as simple as that. I think that there's been a lot of um, hype around My view is that for a product to be successful, I like to use the acronym TECH, T-E-C-H. First of all, it has to be tasty. Then it has to be easy to use and easy to find. Then it has to be cheap. And then it has to be healthy for the people and for the planet. If you get all of those, you've got a successful product and each one is a hurdle. If you don't get over the tasty hurdle, you're not going to have a long-term future. Tony, we've got some consumer data here from the US and it's clear that sales are down. Is it a similar story right around the globe, though? I think if we try and judge the entire plant-based sector and indeed the alternative protein sector on the basis of one company which everybody concentrates on, which is Beyond Meat, then we're missing the whole picture. Yes, there are problems in the US. There are problems even in the UK. 
but Germany is going gangbusters and so are other countries in Europe. So it's not a one-size-fits-all of what's happening in plant-based products. And we're seeing a lot of the supermarkets in Europe, like the Lidl chain, they're driving plant-based product prices down and quality up. So does the plant-based meat industry have a future, Tony? Absolutely, and I think the key reason, Matt, these products have a future is that what we have is an undoubted fact. We're going to have 10 billion people on the planet by 2050 and a growing middle class. And we have this amount of protein that can be sustainably produced within planetary boundaries by animal agriculture. And we have the amount of protein we need. And animal agriculture simply can't scale to meet that entire demand without deforesting the planet, which I would suggest is not going to end well. So we need other protein products to fill that gap. And I think that's what it's about, the gap. The hype about destroying animal agriculture is not realistic. That's not going to happen. And I think that's, and to me, is really the nub of the entire issue with plant-based products. Food futurist Tony Hunter speaking to Matt Brand. Thanks for your company on Countrywide today. I'm Jessica Schremmer. Bye for now. <laughs>